Hello, it is Thursday, June 7th, and what a week it has been. It's been crazy. So Conservatives won the election in Ontario, although that seems like months ago now because so much happened this week. But yes, we won. Doug Ford is going to be the new Premier, and I could not be happier. He won with a majority as well, and actually a really huge majority. The Liberals actually lost their official party status because they now have less than eight seats. That means they won't get any funding from the government unless Ford decides to grant them party status. So yeah, the entire Liberal Party can now fit comfortably in my minivan. The Green Party won a seat, and that's just kind of weird, but it was in Hippieville, Guelph, so if it's gonna, if they're gonna win anywhere, I guess that's where they would probably win. The NDP took a bunch of seats, and so they are now our opposition. So for those who listen from the states, that's a really quick sum up of the election. Those here in Ontario, we are ready to have a long break from anything election-related. But before I go into our Canadian history, a reminder to check out my video series on the abortion debate. You can find that on my YouTube channel and on my website, website So I'm actually starting a new series really soon called the Euthanasia Debate. So I will let you know when that starts. All right, Canadian history. I actually only have two more of these segments. Uh, this one and then one more. So I said we would do a Canadian segment all the way until Canada Day. And I'm away next week. So after this week, there's just one more until Canada Day. So this week, we actually have a ton of Canadian history. Almost the entire podcast is actually going to be Canadian history. But we're going to start off with a little short history lesson that I found kind of interesting. So there's this guy named Sir Thomas White. And he was a liberal but then he ended up eventually moving over into the Conservative Party. So he was in charge of making the government budget in 1917. But there was this huge problem. The war was costing way too much money and Canada was actually running out of money. The cost had reached $600 million. So in 1917, $600 million is a lot of money. Like That is huge. So America and Britain, they had started something called the income tax. And that was supposed to cover the cost of the war. But Thomas White was opposed to this. He said, and this is actually a quote for him, it would appear to me that income tax should not be resorted to. His belief was that taking money away from people that they had earned was in fact theft. So in April, Thomas White submitted his budget to the House of Commons and it did not include any new taxes. But then the cost of the war continued to climb, and by July of that year, just three months later, he changed his mind. But he was adamant. If he was going to end a tax, it could not go longer than the war. So instead of naming it an income tax, he named it the War Tax Income Bill. So according to this bill, a single man making over $2,000 would have to give 4% of his income. And a married man making over $3,000 would have to give 4%. Anyone making over 6000 would have to give up to 25% of their income. But there was a fear that he had. He had a fear that once the government got this tax, you wouldn't be able to take it away from the government. And this was a legitimate fear. Next month, it will be 101 years since this was implemented, and we are now drowning in taxes. So how did that happen? Well, the government became reliant on our money, and then they started something called a deficit. So in the 60s and 70s, the government began to allow itself to run a deficit. Before that, the government, if they didn't have the money for something, they couldn't buy it. Interesting idea. 
but the debt only grew. And to cover that debt, our taxes went up. Right now, more than half of our income tax goes to paying off the interest for the debt that we currently have. And that debt is rising. The Bible says that a righteous person leaves a heritage for his children. As a country, we've done the opposite. We have to remember the deficits of today are the taxes of tomorrow. What are we leaving our children? In our greed to get as much free stuff as possible from the government, we're leaving our children with a tax burden that will become impossible to fix. Future generations are going to be slaves to the country if we don't change something. And it's going to have to be a radical change. So taxes. All right, over the last few months, there's this word tariff that keeps coming up in the news. Honestly, it's super boring and it makes me want to fall asleep right away. So please don't turn off this podcast because I'm going to talk about it, but I am going to talk about it. So I figured out, you know what? I need to know what's going on with tariffs. I didn't really understand what they were, but since we're in the middle of this trade war with the States now, apparently, I thought I should kind of look into this. So Brian Lilly, and if you want a good podcast to listen to, he has a great podcast. And he has been writing a lot about tariffs and speaking a lot about tariffs. So I tweeted out at him and asked him, if we got rid of tariffs, would that make stuff I buy cheaper? And he said, yes, prices could drop by at least 25%. Okay, now this isn't boring anymore. Now I'm very interested. Then I thought, well, what if we got rid of border dues altogether? I mean, how awesome would that be? So at this point, I'm picturing more money in my bank account, and that always makes me a little bit more interested in the topic. So what exactly is a tariff? All right, a tariff, this is the definition. A tariff is used to restrict imports by increasing the price of goods and service, making them less attractive to consumers. Okay, that sounds super boring. And then I read it a few more times, and then I was like, wait a minute, that's me. I'm a consumer. So what you're saying is the government is trying to change my behavior by raising the cost of a product. So now I'm not bored. Now I'm kind of ticked off. I believe in limited government. So let me buy what I want to buy. So my next question, now that I'm interested and also kind of mad, when did this start? Well, it started actually before Canada was even Canada. Okay. Buckle up, Buttercup, because you're about to go on a history ride. So here is the history of tariffs in Canada. Up until 1842, there was two tariffs, an imperial tariff and a colonial tariff. Both had a maximum of only 5%. At that point, Canada was this large frozen wasteland with this tiny population. So how in the world did we survive? Well, we were a colony of England, so we had travel and trade privileges. This was our only way of survival. But as the decades wore on, Britain began to dominate most of the world. And suddenly, they didn't need Canada trade as much. Then Britain did something. It dropped all the tariffs that they had. So these tariffs were tariffs we were not subject to. So once the tariffs ended, we really didn't have the privilege that we needed to stand out and trade. This was really bad for us. So at this time, we started to trade with the Americans. So this guy named Governor General Lord Elgin, he created the Canadian-American Treaty in 1854. So this treaty let us trade raw material and agriculture. Our timber and wheat was in really high demand. So at the time, Americans had a 21% tariff. But under this treaty, that tariff ended. 
Then the Canadians gave the Americans the right to fish off of our shores. So over the next two years under this treaty, Canada had this huge boom, especially Southern Ontario. I mean, this trade agreement was amazing. Our trade more than doubled, but the treaty was really only working in the favor of Canada and not the US. Our exports went up by 33% and the Americans, they only went up by 7%. So in 1866, the American government ended the treaty. And then Canada became kind of nervous. I mean, what exactly was America planning? So for the next 10 years, things were really unstable. The Americans, they were growing their country. They were buying up the West. Like their country was literally growing in size. Would they try to take Canada for themselves? I mean, is this why they stopped the trade? Were they just going to come and take everything they wanted? And then would we be able to stop them if they did? So Britain came up with a way to unite Canada. They came up with the British North American Act. That act would be renamed the Constitution Act of 1867, and it was the founding of our country. So Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Canada, they all united as one dominion under the name Canada. At this point, we have a population of about 3 million, but the Americans, they were nine times the size of us. So after 10 years of having these heavy tariffs, we had this really weak economy. In 1873 years after becoming an official country, McDonald had his first huge trade war. So what happened was Canada said to the Americans, well, you can fish off our shores, but you have to buy a license first. And then Americans agreed to that. They would buy a license from us and then they would fish off our shores. But then they just didn't buy the licenses and they just fished there anyway. So then Mer and McDonald got really mad. So he sent the Coast Guards out to stop the fishermen. Now Grant, he was the president at the time and he had been the head of the military during the Civil War the one that freed the slaves, he was outraged. How dare Canada send their Coast Guards out to their to the American fishing boats? I mean, who does Canada even think they are? So then Grant, he sent his military to stop all inbound goods from Canada. No trade would be allowed. Grant had no time for Canada. Okay, if you think Trump is the first president to use harsh language and mock other countries, you've probably not spent a lot of time in a history book. Grant called Canada a semi-independent, irresponsible agent of Britain. And there was some truth to that. But Grant and Macdonald, they got together a year later and they decided to make a treaty and they made the Treaty of Washington. So two years after that, Grant and Macdonald were at it again. They had another trade problem and it was the fishing again. So this time they agreed the Americans could fish on our shores wherever they wanted and in exchange we could sell our fish to the states. Really it was not a good treaty for Canada and McDonald didn't like the treaty but Grant was clear agree with this treaty or we're going to hate you as much as we hate Britain. McDonald wanted peace and he didn't want to live next to a country that hated us so he agreed but he agreed but he was still angry. So in 1877, four years later, McDonald raised our tariffs. Then Mackenzie became prime minister and he raised the tariffs even more. Then we had another election and McDonald won the election again and once again became our prime minister. Now here's a kind of funny side note story. At this election, McDonald didn't actually win his seat. So his party won the election and he was the head of his party. So technically he was the prime minister, but he wasn't a sitting minister because he didn't win his own seat. So they had to give him the seat of a riding in BC. He never even visited that riding before. Okay, that's just a side note. But anyway, the Conservatives, they won that election, but they ran on the platform protective tariffs. So they convinced the Canadian citizens that 
these taxes that the Canadians would have to pay if they wanted to buy something from the states would be good and would protect them. Remember, tariffs are taxes we pay as a way to convince us not to buy products that we want to buy from the states. We pay the tariffs. Okay, in 1907, we came up with this really nice system for our taxes. I mean, sorry, for our tariffs. There's three columns. We had a British column, basically no tariffs. Then we had an intermediate tariff. And that was small tariffs that we would have and on nations that we called favored nations. Then we had general tariffs. These were really high tax tariffs and they were for the rest of the world. So that was our system, three tiers. Two years later, the Americans came up with a similar system, but it had two columns. We like you, we hate you. Then they told Canada, you're going in the we hate you column unless you give us the same tariffs as Britain. So we didn't really have a choice, so they got the British column. In 1910, we signed an agreement. In 1910, we signed an agreement. We agreed to give the Americans the lowest tariffs, lower than any other country, and then the United States would finally put us in the we like you column. Then, just when things were starting to get better, the war started. We got income tax, like I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, and there was more tariff fights. The Americans decided they didn't want to trade at all. Then after the war, in 1930 came the Great Depression. Both countries wanted to make sure that the work and jobs were in their own countries. So both U.S. and Canada raised tariffs more. You know, they taxed us more. Then in 1931, we had a tariff war with Russia. In 1936, we had a tariff war with Japan. But in 1935, we signed a significant agreement with the states. It was the first good treaty we had signed in 70 years. It was called the most favored country. So what would happen is that Canada would agree that America would be our most favored country, and America agreed Canada would be the most favored country. Tariffs were reduced by 50%, and a lot of items had no tariffs on them at all. It was fantastic, and it lasted for four years, because then we entered World War II. So, after we entered World War II, Canada passed a War Conservation Act. That means they banned all non-essentials from being imported into Canada. So just to be clear, this wasn't a tariff. It was an outright ban. This was because we wanted to make sure we were making our own products for the war, and we wanted to make sure we would have enough. This was considered a national security issue. So when the states uses the same reasoning today under Trump, this isn't the first time we used this reasoning ourselves during World War II. Okay, the war ended, the 50s came along, and it was a great time for Canada. Our population at this point was at about 14 million. We got our first TV station, our first subway system. Lester Pearson was the president of the United Nations General Assembly, and he had one main goal, to end the Korean crisis. We were also fighting amongst ourselves over a proposed pipeline. So just a reminder, there's really nothing new under the sun. So the 50s were kind of similar to today in that way. Then in the 60s, we began to promote trade with the U.S. again, and once again, we lowered our tariffs. Then, in the 1970s, we reorganized our dairy and egg farms. Milk, chicken, and eggs would be under strict government control. There was three pillars to this. First of all, a huge tariff would make sure that we would not buy any products that were not Canadian. Second, quotas. We would make sure that only a certain percentage of things were produced. And in the 1970s, quotas were just given to the farmers. Unless you had a quota, 
you could not have a farm. You could sell your quota if you wanted to, or you could leave it in your will. Third, the government decided what the cost of these products were going to be. This stopped any trade with the states as far as eggs, milk, or chicken. Then in 1988, as Ronald Reagan was leaving office, he made the Free Trade Agreement. It was October 4th, and after 134 years of back and forth trade wars, we were now going to finally have free trade. This would phase in over the next 10 years. But before the 10 years were done, and before we could experience this free trade, totally free trade, Clinton became president and then he tried to fix it, even though it didn't need to be fixed. He decided to add Mexico into the mix and changed it to NAFTA. In 1997, we made a free trade agreement with Israel and Chile. And in 2001, we made a free trade agreement with Costa Rica. Our farm supply management had now changed. Quotas that were free in 1970, at this point, they're now about $40,000 per cow. And our tariffs were now at 270% for our milk. The set prices had also risen significantly, and we pay much higher price than our milk is actually worth. The supply management has really not been good for the industry. When we got it, we had 140,000 dairy farms, and today we only have 12,000. This is because before the 1970s, it was a capitalistic market. After the 1970s, it became more of a communist market. I mean, the government has full control. Nothing ever grows under government control. It always gets worse. There was, however, a loophole. Ultra-filter milk and protein-rich dairy. Okay, that was not under the tariffs. So Canadian companies used that to make cheese and yogurt. In just one year, $133 million worth of products was traded. Then, in 2016, the loophole was ended. Now our Canadian cheese and yogurt companies would have to pay a 270% tax if they wanted this milk. This ended the trade. The American farmers were really angry, so they complained to Trump. Trump said he would help. So now we're currently in a trade war over milk. So how does this work? Okay, I've been told we have to protect our farmers, but to be clear, this 250% tax is only on eggs, milk, and chicken from the States. We don't pay this tax on the rest of farm products. Only 5% of our farmers are protected by this tax. Now, I have good friends that are milk farmers and are very invested in this system. And I really want to try and show both sides. And I'm not exactly sure where I fall on this, but my gut says government shouldn't be controlling our farms. So here are some arguments I've heard. One, Australia had the exact same system and they ended it. What they did was they gave their farmers compensation. They paid them for their quotas. This would be awesome for the farmers who got the quotas in the 70s when they were free. Two, we could drop our milk prices. And I'm good with that because I have a large family and we buy a lot of milk. Three, there was this cheese factory in Canada and it won an award for the best cheese in the world. Then it couldn't sell it because there wasn't enough milk for the factory to keep up production. So it would be good if we had more milk. Four, we are currently in negotiations to upgrade or downgrade NAFTA. If we were willing to end our tariff on milk, that would give us a really huge leverage. And the percentage of people affected is very small compared to the auto or the aluminum or steel industry. All right, five, Canadian milk companies are now setting up factories in the States. 
so that they can compete on the global stage. If we got rid of this, these factories could come back to Canada and they would give us more jobs. Okay, now there are also some huge problems with ending the milk tax, I mean the milk tariff. The Americans subsidize their milk farmers and so our farmers can't compete with them. It would put them out of business because we would buy the American milk and not the Canadian milk since the American milk would be cheaper. Two, the milk in the States uses hormones, so we would flood our market with hormone-grown milk. Three, milk farmers just can't compete on the global market, so opening up to the global market would actually hurt our farmers. All right, so here are some answers to those problems. One, the states only subsidizes the small farms now. They no longer subsidize the large farms. We could and should make this part of the negotiations. Either all farms will not be subsidized anymore, or maybe we could say just the very small ones that are not going to be selling into Canada can be subsidized, but it would need to be made on an equal playing ground. Two, not all milk in the states uses hormones, and we can and should say only hormone-free milk can cross the border. But just a side note, for those people freaking out at the idea of hormones being in their milk coming to Canada, most of our beef is full of extra hormones, so you're already getting it. But that being said, we should say you can only sell hormone-free milk in Canada. Three, I think milk farmers can compete. All the other farmers compete. America sells its milk all over the world, and our milk has a good reputation, so it would sell well but we may need to help our farmers set up ways to sell on the global market. We have currently 13 ridings in Canada with more than 300 farms, eight in Quebec and five in Ontario. All right, so that's the history. So how did that affect what happened to us this week? Well, we've been in negotiations for NAFTA. Trump wants a higher percentage of automobiles made in the States. And he also wants to up the percentage of the car that has to be made in North America for it to count as a made in America product. And while a higher percentage made in the States, that's not good for us, upping the percentage of the car being made in North America, that will help us a lot. And that will mean a lot of new factories. Trump is also interested in having an agreement with just Canada, like Ronald Reagan had planned in 1988. And that would be awesome for Canada. Trump also wanted a sunset clause, and that means that in five years we would have to renegotiate. And Trump was not happy with our high tariffs. So Canada, like I said, it has a 270% tax on American milk, but it also has a 69.9% tax on American sausage. We have a 57.8% tax on American barley seed, a 49% tax on durum wheat, 26.5% tax on meat, and we just call this tax a tariff. Trump wants these either gone or lowered. Trudeau refused, so then Trump announced he was going to add tariffs on steels and aluminum. Then Trudeau begs for Canada to be excluded, and Trump agreed. But then Trudeau refuses to back down on this supply management and the dairy tariffs, so then Trump announces he's going to add Canada into the tariffs on steel and aluminum. And his reason is America needs to have a strong steel and aluminum production in case there's a war. They don't want to be dependent on other countries for their steel and aluminum. We call Trump a bully. I mean, how can he do that? What a mean guy. I mean, that's just being a bully. Except that we do that and have done that over and over again throughout our entire existence. And currently, we have a higher tariff the states has. So if it's being a bully, then we're kind of the bigger bully. 
All right, here's my thoughts. How about if we just end all the tariffs, all of them? How about we stop trying to manipulate the customer? Because that's me, I'm the customer. I don't like being manipulated. How about we stop manipulating the customer with higher taxes? How about I spend my money on what I want to spend my money on? How about that? That sounds like a good idea to me. So Trump and Trudeau, they talk on the phone about this. And Trump jokes about Canadians burning down the White House during the war in 1812. Clearly a joke. It's the one every Canadian history teacher tells. Well, Trudeau then leaks the joke to Jim Acosta. If you don't know who Jim Acosta is, that's the reporter that has a hate, hate, hate relationship with Trump. I mean, they hate each other. So it was a very cheap shot at Trump. Well, then they have our G7 meeting. So G7 meeting is a bunch, well, seven countries that get together and talk and decide how they're going to spend our tax dollars on stuff that's usually pointless. This time they decided $3.8 billion go towards girls' education. Look, I'm all for girls' education, but the countries are not educating their girls, are holding that education back because they don't believe girls can or should learn. It's not money that's the problem, it's the ideologies and often the religion that does not see any worth in girls. But anyway, at the G7, Trump and Trudeau meet, and Trudeau gives Trump a gift. It's a picture of a hotel his grandfather owned in Canada. That sounds nice, right? Except it's a very sore spot in the Trump family. This hotel is known as the brothel. It's a very negative connotation. So then the two talk at the G7 meeting and Trump decides he is willing to drop the sunset clause. And it looks like things are going in the right direction. So then Trump has to leave early because he's going to go end a 70 year war with North Korea. No biggie. But once Trump leaves, Trudeau has a press conference and he says Canada will not bow down to the United States. He's going to stand for Canada. The tariffs the states have put on Canada are not fair, and it's kind of insulting that Trump says the tariffs are needed for national security. Trudeau says nothing about Trump being willing to bend on the sunset clause. So Trump is mad and says Canada is going to have to pay. All right, great. Then Trump spends the next two days dealing with North Korea. So Rocket Man, new name, he's now Chairman Kim. And he shows Chairman Kim a video showing him what North Korea could be like if he's willing to put his nukes away and play nice. So Kim agrees. He likes the video. So they sign a paper and it's the first step. Okay, I get it. There's many, many, many more steps to come. I did a whole podcast on North Korea. You can find that here on my podcast or on my blog. I wrote the history of North Korea and I update that blog every time something new happens. So go ahead and check that out. Meanwhile, while Trump is saving the world from World War III, Trudeau decides to take a personal day because he needed a nap after the G7. There you go. I guess I could have summarized this whole podcast like this. Tariffs are taxes you make your own citizens pay as a way of controlling their behavior. Supply management is government controlling our firms. And we're currently in a trade war with the states, but that's nothing new. We've been in a trade war since the beginning. And our prime minister is kind of a mean girl and Trump gets his feelings hurt too easy. But we can't complain about all this. Not when we look at what happened at North Korea. Not when we look at the people of North Korea. Once again, my heart is drawn towards these people. Two days ago, I listened to a defector from North Korea. She was asked by a reporter why the people of North Korea have not revolted. What she said was amazing. She said they are slaves but they don't know they are slaves. I was a slave, but I didn't know I was a slave, not until I was free. Wow, that is so profound. 
I mean, really think about that. Could that be true with us? And then it comes to taxes, tariffs, supply management. Would we not truly understand freedom unless we experienced it? And have we ever really experienced it? But we could also look at what she said that she was a slave, but she didn't know she was a slave until she was free. We can look at that spiritually. We are slaves, we don't even know it. We're slaves to stuff. We're slaves to acceptance. We're slaves to political correctness. We're slaves to money. We're slaves to power. We're slaves to being loved. We're slaves to fear. We're slaves to sin. What is controlling you? What are you a slave to? The truth is, there is only freedom found in Jesus Christ. I heard another interview this week on the border of North Korea. It was David Platt and Francis Chan, and they asked this question that just keeps sticking in my mind. If you were living in North Korea, what would you want the West to do for you? If you were living with no hope, if you never heard of Jesus Christ, if your life was a slave life, what would you want the West to do for you? As a church, we've been basically silent about North Korea. I prayed for them. I've talked about them at missions conferences. I mean, they're kind of like the ultimate goal in missions, the impossible field. But what have we actually done? But now there's at the very least hope. Hope that something might be done. Hope that maybe, just maybe, the door might open and we may be able to bring the hope of Jesus to the people of North Korea. When I hear from Christians being negative about this, I don't understand. It's like, we don't believe that there's hope. Maybe so many Christians have this huge hate for Trump that they won't or can't celebrate this hope that freedom might actually be on its way. What we need to do is pray, and we pray extra hard, because Satan is going to be trying extremely hard to keep that door closed. We should be having massive prayer meetings going on all across North America. Do we actually believe that freedom comes through God? God's the one who made us. He loves us. He wants to have a relationship with us. It's our sin that enslaves us and, and ruins our relationship with God. We can do nothing to free ourselves because we're slaves. But God made a way. He's the way. God came as Jesus Christ and he came and lived a perfect sinless life and then gave up that life so we could so he could take the punishment for our sins Jesus died and then rose again and because Jesus was perfect and because Jesus is God because he died and rose again we can have real true freedom when we tell God we're sorry for our sins and we ask him to forgive us he does and then we're no longer a slave to sin and as a Christian he continues to change us if we let him he will change us so that we're no longer a slave to fear, no longer a slave to stuff, no longer a slave to acceptance, no longer a slave to money, no longer a slave to power, no longer a slave to being loved. We are no longer slaves but free. So go out today and live like you're free. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. I'm not going to be here next week. My daughter is graduating grade eight, so my week will be all wrapped up in that celebration, but I will see you in two weeks. In the meantime, check out my website at lauraleesiemens.com for my videos and my vlogs. See you in two weeks.